Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Before I introduce our speaker, it's our custom to go around and introduce ourselves. And given that this is probably the closest Sunday we have to the end of a year and the start of a new one, there's an opportunity if you want, as well as your name, to just say an intention for yourself for 08. (laughs) (laughs) Which you can pass on as well. So, um, my name is Dean, and um, my intention is to uh, move more from intentions to action. I'm Larry Wish, and I'm, uh, I'd like to open up more to love and, and present. Douglas Hall, lose weight. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey, and I, I don't have an intention yet. Rich, uh, <coughs> opening. Uh, Justin. I'm Robert. I'm Chris. <coughs> I'm Carl. And I'd say kindness and forgiveness for me for a week. Baruch Golden, and my intention is to uh, strengthen my practice. Empty my email in meat this year. I'm Ramey. Mine is to be early for things. Michael, um, I would also like to uh, deepen my practice. I'm Will. Um, I'd like to keep coming back here. I'm great, Jesser. I want to increase my intention and stay in the present moment. David and my intention is awakening. I'm Marvin and my intention is to be more in the moment. Stephen Chan, in the peace. I'm Andre and my intention is to work less. I'm Dennis and my intention is to stay on the healing path. I'm Peter and my intention is to think less and accept more. Mm-hmm. I'm Marty, and I'm going to relax and stay focused. I'm Thomas Dwyer. Uh, my intention for this year is to live in greater integrity. I'm Marvin. I'm Amy. I'm Ray Dyer. Uh, my intention <coughs> is to stay more in the present moment. Tom Bruin, uh, to begin working from other cities. Uh, my name is Harley. Intentions to continue exploration and wonder. I'm not mad. I'd like to um, let go of the past. My name 
name is David Axel, and I would like to focus on interconnectedness. My name is Richard. I have a lot of intentions, but the one that has me most excited is I'm planting a garden this year. My name is Paul Shepard, and I want to heal myself with the end of the doubt so that I can better serve the world. My name is Clint Sider, and I want to be more consistent in my meditation practice. My name is Ari. Peter, more writing. I'm Jim. My intention is to play my viola more mindfully. My name is Steve. And I would like to age gracefully. Jim, I intend to take more walks. <laughs> Is anybody here for the first or second time or returning after a while? Welcome. <coughs> we have a social half hour after this. You're welcome to come and participate in. So our speaker today is our good friend Jim Wilson, who uh, is a former abbot of the Chogye Zen Center in New York and has studied in the Chogye, Fuke, and Soto traditions of Zen. And he leads a monthly sutra salon in Sebastopol now and comes to see us when he's able to. He was also a monk for six years and he was a prison chaplain for the criminally insane where he was bringing the Dharma to the deranged. <laughs> Thank It's wonderful to be back here um, and uh, to see so many familiar faces. Uh, boy, this sangha keeps growing. It's really, uh, it's, it's really uh, quite uh, an accomplishment. So, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Um, I'd like to begin with a short uh, sonic meditation. It's um, chanting the syllable ah. So. Um, Pick a pitch that's relaxed, not too high, not too low, just just a middle pitch. And uh, also uh, middle volume. You don't have to chant really loudly or really slowly. But uh, And don't worry about harmonizing or timing you know, with everybody else. Just a deep breath on the exhale, the syllable ah. We'll just do it for a few minutes. <coughs>
everything is just like this, just like this cloud of sound. Everything is like that cloud of sound. Very simple. So when I say that everything is like that cloud of sound, what I mean is that everything arises due to causes and conditions, just like this cloud of sound. So why is that difficult to understand? You know, why is that why do we forget that? You know, like even if we intellectually understand that everything arises to causes and conditions, it's not always um, in fact, most of the time, it's not easy for us to perceive. So when I look at this, I do not perceive the causes and conditions which gave rise to this. I believe the causes and conditions gave rise to it, and that's called inference. Okay? That's mental, inference. But I don't perceive the causes and conditions which gave rise to this. I don't know what kind of wood this is. I don't know what kind of cloth this is. I don't know where it was put together. You know, like it just sort of seems to be here, right? That's why we forget that things arise due to causes and conditions because our perception of the world is a little askew. Things just seem to sort of be there, right? But with that cloud of sound, it's very clear the causes and conditions which gave rise to that cloud of sound were us. So we can understand this very simply. Everything arises like that cloud of sound. You, me, the sun, the moon, the stars, this, the bell, everything. Like so, arises due to many causes and conditions. Yeah, just like that cloud of sound. The name for this in Buddhism, incidentally, is dependent origination, which is a mouthful. The Sanskrit is even more of a mouthful. Pratitya samutpada. But there won't be a test. You don't have to remember that. So, yeah, like so. But that's a, a good. It's an idea, and it's a very profound idea. But your mind can tend to run away with it. You know, like so. If you just return to something that's very simple to understand, like that cloud of sound, then ah, now I understand what the Buddha meant when he said that everything arises due to causes and conditions. That's what he was getting at. So, everything is like this cloud of sound in that everything is constantly changing. So, some people would chant, some people would take a breath, the pitch changes, the density shifts, you know, constantly. It's we're listening to that cloud of sound and as we're participating in it, and we can directly perceive that the cloud of sound is constantly changing. But, once again, if I look at this, I believe that it's constantly changing. I think the scientists are telling me the truth that the subatomic particles are doing a cosmic dance in there. <laughs> like, yeah. But I don't see it. You know, like I don't you know, like I trust that it's the case. You know, like I, I trust that um, modern science is telling me the truth about this. Um, I, 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 I trust that. I have good reasons to, be, to believe that, but I don't perceive it. So there's kind of a gap you know, between understanding and perception. Our normal perception of things, for the most part, doesn't reveal this constantly changing, shifting, rivering world that we're a part of. You know, like I, I go to my room, and the desk looks like the same desk that I saw yesterday. You know, like the carpet looks the same, looks pretty much the same. You know, like, but 
But actually, everything is like this cloud of sound. Everything is constantly moving, shifting, changing. Like that's really the nature of things. So when the Buddha talks about how everything is changing, if you ground that understanding in a simple experience, like the, an experience like that cloud of sound, then you can understand what he means. You know, like so, the bricks of the wall are constantly changing. They're like that cloud of sound. You know, like you and I are constantly changing. Yeah. So everything is like that. Everything is just like that. Very clear. You know, like, and when I rang the bell and the chanting stopped, that's impermanence. Impermanence is not hard to understand. It's just <laughs> so when the conditions which gave rise to the cloud of sound ceased, the cloud of sound ceased. So... So when this exists, that exists. When this does not exist, that does not exist. That is the nature of things. Everything is impermanent, just like that cloud of sound. Very simple. You know, like, so, so when the Buddha talks about impermanence, that's what he's talking about. You know, like, so. But once again, you know, like we forget that. It's hard for us to remember that or to keep it in mind because the appearance of the world is not one. <coughs> that yields that understanding of impermanence on a perceptual level. So, you know, like um, the Buddha uh, uh, accepted the uh, Vedic cosmology in which his culture uh, was embedded. You know, he, ne- he never challenged it. You know, all, all these heavens, deities, you know, like it was pretty complex. You know, like, but what he did say is that um, the deities were impermanent; they would pass away. Yeah. So can you, can you, that's quite a quite an um, insight. So try going into a, a church and saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 or a mosque, <laughs> like uh, if the, you know, like if this will pass away. I mean, you, you, that's the kind of impact you know that a teaching teaching like that has. But it, but the Buddha really meant it. You know, like he really, you know, like he really, he really meant that. You know, like so, so. But it's hard for us because we, what we always want to do is we want to um, offer an, an exemption for something that we're really fond of. <laughs> you know, like so, everything is impermanent except for you know, like so, you know, like uh, and so. Uh, uh, that's why it ta- that's why it's a good idea to contemplate impermanence on a regular basis. You know, it's, it's a good idea to you to you know sort of really get into that. That everything is like this cloud of sound it comes to an end. You know? So um, you know, like this, uh, a simple contemplation like that is very rich and rewarding in terms of understanding the Dharma. I refer to this as the gate of sound. You know, like so, the the sonic domain more clearly displays basic truths of the Dharma than other sensory domains. You know, like so like visual visual things, for example, are a little, you know, deceptive. You know, it's not that the it's I'm not saying it's illusory, that perceptions are illusory, that there's no floor here, for example, or that you and I are not here, or the walls here. What I'm saying is that our perception is skewed. You know, like that skewed in the sense that when we look at the floor and we look at the wall we don't see that the floor and the wall arise due to causes and conditions. We don't see that they're constantly changing, and we don't see, perceive that they are impermanent. 
discovered. That's one of the reasons practice is necessary. Regular practice is necessary. You know, like, because the feedback we get from our daily interaction and perception of the world doesn't sustain these insights. And so we need to create situations and conditions which bring that insight and that understanding to the foreground so that with regular practice we can deepen that understanding and begin to extend it further and further in our lives. So, does that make sense? <laughs> so, uh, do you have any questions or comments? Yeah. Um, I can, one, one area where I can see impermanence is in historical impermanence. So yeah. I can look at this building and say, okay, 100 years from now. Uh-huh. You know, it's like this building will probably be something different. But, but what I, where I have trouble is seeing impermanence in the context of just this very moment and whether that, that perception or that knowledge of impermanence is irrelevant. So is it really important for me to see that this wall is impermanent mm-hmm. in terms of how it serves a purpose mm-hmm. for me in this very moment? And this is where I wonder, I wonder about this whole notion and how it will help bring me closer, perhaps, to some kind of greater truth. Um, contemplation on impermanence is a, a foundation for equanimity. Okay. Okay. So it leads to equanimity, and that's how it will benefit your ordinary interaction in everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, it also <clears throat> prepares you for the unexpected. And so that uh, um, so for example human beings are not particularly upset when the sound of a bell comes to an end but they are upset when a plate breaks and yet it's the same it's the same impermanence you know, like, so but that's because uh, in the visual uh, domain people people forget you know like uh, that things will come to an end you know, like so if you a regular contemplation of impermanence will produce um, a foundation for equanimity in the face of the plate breaking <laughs> or those kind of ordinary ordinary interactions. You know, like, so you can so, let it go. I mean, yes, exactly. Yeah. Go so that you would have the same sense of equanimity in the face of that kind of impermanence as you would when the sound of a bell ceases. So if you want to understand equanimity, for example, ring a bell when the bell ceases and the mind that is completely content with that, that mind is equanimity. What's the difference though between equanimity and indifference? Well, that's interesting. Let's see. I'm trying to remember uh, Sharon Salzberg had a really uh, good analysis of indifference and my mind is not bringing it up at the moment. But <laughs> so indifference is um, uh, it, it's actually the seed of resentment. It's sort of nascent resentment, you know, like in the sense that um, uh, this doesn't bother me. You know, like it, there's there's a seed of judgment in there, in the sense that uh, it's not worthy of me being bothered by, you know, like. So, um, it, at least in classically in Buddhism, that's how they differentiate between the two. You know, like so, uh, equanimity is contentment. It isn't that um, you know. Say, say you have this antique plate that was inherited from your great grandfather, and, and then you break it one day. You know, like uh, equanimity is acceptance of the fact, but you can also feel at the same time it's too bad. 
All right. So, in uh, indifference would be a sort of a, a pretending, you know, like that that uh, that the the other elements weren't there, that the full experience wasn't there. I have a question also about desired outcome versus outcome that you, that you don't desire. If you can accept that everything changes, but, but there's a whole range of, of ways something could change. Right. And it's not easy, at least in some circumstances, not to wish a change would be more in one direction than another direction. Right. You get us away from material objects more into cultures and societies and, envi- and, and you know, right. you know, bio-environment and so on. Uh, I can't help but hoping that an outcome is going to go one way versus mm-hmm. another way. But I don't see a whole lot of equanimity in that. So I mean, like, I, I guess that's, it's hard. It's hard for me not to feel that. It's also hard for me to feel that and, and have equanimity at the same time. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it is difficult. It is uh, to 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 have that balance. I'm not saying that it's easy. You know, like, but I am saying that it's possible. You know, like. So that um, uh, I would naturally prefer, I guess uh, uh, I personally would prefer (laughs) that, uh, for example, that the United States move in a certain direction in terms of, say, its foreign policy. But but, uh, at at the same time, you know, like I I realize that um, it's not up to me. Like, uh, that, you know, you do what you can, and then the result, if the causes and conditions are there, then there will be the, re- the desired result. And if they're not there, then it won't. You know, like, uh, so um, you, can't, you can't control the conditions. Of, you can't control all the conditions. You can just do your best. You know, like uh, in in this world, you know, like uh, that that's that's the compromise I make. You know, uh, I'm just speaking from my personal experience. You know, like that you know, I I acutely aware of how limited my uh, influence is on on the world. You know, like uh, and how um, how small of an effect you know, like my personal wishes will have. You know, like that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, like uh, so, I do my best. I speak when I can. I um, do, do what I think is good, and then I, I leave it up to I. If the universe decides to move in that direction, then it will. And if it if it doesn't, then it won't. Regardless of my preferences. You know. So, um, Seng San, the third uh, patriarch of Zen. In China, it had this uh, has this poem on trusting the heart. You know, the great way has no obstacles for those who do not pick and choose. When we cast preferences aside, the way is clear and undisguised. But even slight distinctions made, and earth and heaven is far apart. You know, it's a um, very very famous poem, and yet you know, like uh, when you read it, you're going like. The great way has no obstacles for those who do not pick and choose. But you know, I got up this morning and I had toast and I didn't have oatmeal. So what is he talking about? You know, like, <laughs> like, and uh, what he's what he's talking about is equanimity. You know, if if I wake up in the morning and I want toast, but there is no bread, you know, like 
am, is this going to ruin my day? You know, like, um, you know, that's, that's what he's getting at. You know, like, so I, I remember, well, I don't, I don't want to underestimate the, the, um, the difficulty of maintaining this balance. That's another reason why practice is necessary. You know, the cultivation of equanimity is, is an ongoing project. You know, like, and we lose our equanimity. You know, as we practice. I mean, I lose my equanimity. I get angry that you know this or that has happened. Like, you know, like. But if you have a practice of equanimity, you can cultivate it, and it can grow. You know, like. Uh, I mean, Shakyamuni Buddha uh, worked very, very hard at uh, uh, founding a sangha. You know, like. Uh, I mean, this was. Uh, a big project of his, which took 45 years of his life. You know, like, uh, and if you read the Vinaya, he was constantly refining the parameters of the Sangha, you know, taking away this rule, <clears throat> amending that rule, you know, adding this practice, you know, uh, th- throughout all those decades, you know, like, so, um, so he definitely wanted a certain result. You know, like and and put a lot of time and effort into achieving that result. So I don't think equanimity um, is um, contrary to making plans or moving in a certain direction. At the very in the last year of the Buddha's life, his two closest disciples died. You know, Shariputra uh, predeceased him. Moggallana was murdered. Um, his cousin Devadatta tried to assassinate him. You know, like uh, all, all of this happened in the last maybe 18 months. You know, like uh, uh, of his life, and it's it's really instructive to see uh, his disciples' reactions to those uh, situations and uh, Shakyamuni's uh, reactions to those situations as well. You know, like it is possible to maintain a sense of equanimity and balance even in. Um, a sea of distress. However, when we ourselves fall into distress, it's good to be compassionate for ourselves, you know, and remind us, you know, it, it's uh, to to have a sense of compassion. Say, oh yes, you know, like I'm being I'm being carried away by that. More practice is necessary. So, is that responsive to your? Yes. I just wanted to comment on the, uh, and you sort of just did, on the difference between indifference and equanimity. And mm-hmm. the way that works for me that I've heard is the whole uh, notion of wisdom and compassion, and that mm-hmm. compassion, indifference is not caring about what happens. And as soon right. as you bring in compassion and compassion for suffering, mm-hmm. you, can't be indif- you can't be indifferent anymore, but you can still have equanimity. Yeah, thank you. That's, yeah. I appreciate that. I have a question about, in the last very section we talked about, about equanimity, um, recently, my best friend from childhood was here for 13 months, and he was dealing with a very major health issue. And um, I got together with him two or three times a week. And for whatever reasons, this might be the attachment, probably his attachment. I wanted to really experience each of the times I got together with him as a wholeness in itself, without it having to be contextualized in what might happen and uh-huh. anything like that. And as a result, eventually, all the treatments ultimately um, didn't really um, work in the sense of preserving his life, and he died. And um, I saw what happened to me, which was that I did actually go to a place of loss 
of a feeling of um, sadness. And then what arose for me was a kind of grieving process mm-hmm. in which I was grieved. And I did, to be honest with you, think of the grieving as being filled with anonymity. I didn't. I felt the grieving was a way of being profoundly connected to myself. Mm-hmm. And then that too left. So, you know, I have a little trouble. Well, that's still challenging. I guess maybe my problem is that I think of equanimity as static, and of course, it's probably much more a process. Um, the, uh, the death of uh, someone close to us is uh, one of the great challenges of life. You know, it's very, uh, very difficult. You know? uh, and the, uh, the way to use that situation to cultivate equanimity is to universalize the experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, I'm not the only one who will die. All will die. So there's a teaching of the Buddha called the Five Contemplations for Everyone. Like, um, uh, let's see, uh, all will grow old. Like, like all will suffer sickness. Um, all will die. Uh, all are the heirs of their own deeds. And I'm sorry, I forget the fifth one now, but it's but it's like that. So he says every. Uh, this is one of the few discourses, incidentally, where the Buddha begins by saying, "These are the contemplations for everyone, monk or nun, layman or laywoman." Now, where he explicitly says that this is a teaching that all people should do, which is which is interesting. So he begins by just outlining the five contemplations. I am of a nature to grow old. I am of a nature to become ill. I am of a nature to die. I am of a nature to be separated from all that I hold dear. And I am the heir of my own deeds. So the, okay. Then the second part of the contemplation, which is just as important, is um, I am of, uh, I'm not the only one to grow old. All are of a nature to grow old. I am not the only one to become ill. All are of a nature to become ill. I'm not the only one to die. All are of the nature to die. I'm not the only one to be separated from all I hold dear. All will be separated from all they hold dear. I'm not the only heir of my own deeds. All are heirs of their own deeds. And then it concludes, knowing this, the way appears and the path emerges. Like so. Thich Nhat Hanh does his contemplation every day. This is a contemplation he does every single morning. You know, like the, these five, you know, like very. Um, I know, you know, when you first hear them, it's just like, Ooh. <laughs> it's a little heavy. <laughs> like to, to start your morning, get up in the morning. <laughs> like, but, uh, but actually, they're very refreshing because they turn the mind away from its tendency to grasp. You know, like onto the path to the deathless. You know, like, so, on to the path to the unconditioned, you know, like, uh, and the deathless. So, um, I personally do that contemplation every day. I find it very, you know, very rewarding, you know, like, uh, and uh, so I, you know, I, it's in one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books if people are interested in it, you know, like, but, but uh, many Buddhists do that. So that step to universalizing is the path to equanimity when one is in any kind of distress, actually. But particularly when one is in a situation uh, that concerns the loss of someone dear or the separation of someone dear, you know, either either one of those two. Um, so there's a kind of a folk 
folksy saying, you know, all relationships end in death or divorce. <laughs> you know, like so, but 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 really, you know, thinking about that and, ta- and ta- taking that to heart, you know, like uh, and and uh, under understanding understanding the ramifications of that and and not being frightened about you know going going into that, you know, like so understanding those kinds of things is very important, but it's not the whole of the Dharma. The the insight that is gained, you know, like from investigation of those kinds of contemplations is that it uh, it opens up that there's another way of living. You know, there's another way of living besides grasping after things seeking experiences, you know, like accumulating uh, objects. You know, like that's what the Buddha means at the end, that knowing this, the way appears and the path emerges. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Um, You made a comment about if you were going to a church and make the comment about the origination, So, in light of that, I was thinking about Larry Yang's presence here last week, and he talked about this sort of merging in some ways of uh, uh, a Buddha with, a, with some sort of Christmas hat on. <clears throat> a Buddha with some sort of Christmas hat on, and last week he was here talking about how Buddhism is evolving based on who we are. And so, in light of, in light of those two things, we talked about the usefulness and the meaningfulness of the concept of dependent origination. And I, what comes to mind, uh, uh, particularly with regard to Christianity and the reality that how the origination of our country, you know, where we are now, our Buddhism, is in some sense is dependent upon how this country started. Mm-hmm. Everything from Martin Luther to, um, <laughs> you know, the Reformation, all of that, our independence, how we live. Is very, very, very much tied to um, some ideas around Christianity. So I'm wondering if um, you know. I think about Meister Eckhart and people like mm-hmm. Thomas Merton and, uh, and and Buddhism. And are we are we are we di- and is, is there a dichotomy here in terms of uh, not fully recognizing the connection between where we are now, how we receive our Buddhism, how we move forward? And our our past, our connection being that this society has, has comes out of a very strong Christian mm-hmm. perspective. There's a lot of distorted Christianity, of course, in the same way. <coughs> you know, there'll be you know there are a lot of distortion in Buddhism as as we go as we go along. So I'm wondering, um, in terms of the uh, concept of equanimity, how do we reach that point of, of equanimity in terms of um, you know? our Christian heritage as a country, our society, and how we live, and our Buddhism, because there, there is a connection there, and oftentimes it seems as though uh, we don't want to we don't mm-hmm. want to go there. And I think Thomas Merton might have might have pointed a direction for us, and I'm wondering if you could share something. Yeah, Merton is one of my personal heroes, has, has been for a very long time. Uh, um, my perception of the transmission of the Dharma to the West is that historically it resembles the transmission of the Dharma to China, you know, like uh, as a precedent. It, it doesn't resemble very much the transmission of the Dharma to Southeast Asia or to Tibet or to Japan, you know, like. But um, the, 
by that I mean that China had a very strong uh, cultural heritage. It was already ancient. Uh, the United States isn't ancient, but, but follow me for a bit here. Uh, it had a, an indigenous spiritual tradition, which was very strong. And I'm referring primarily to Confucianism, you know, not primarily to Taoism. Confucianism was the dominant uh, spiritual tradition in China. And Confucians had a very secure sense of the importance of their tradition and its profundity, you know, like, and, uh, and so when Confucianism and Buddhism met, there was a, a lot of friction, you know, like, um, there's, in the Chinese canon, there's a, a work called Ha Master Mo Removed Our Doubts, and it's, uh, it comes from uh, roughly around the end of the, the fall of the Han Dynasty, and Master Mo was a Confucian literati, you know, like, who converted to Buddhism. And his uh, fellow Confucians were um, quite upset about this because the Han Dynasty was falling apart, and they said it is the duty of a Confucian sage to, you know, support uh, the the culture and the society, particularly at this critical time. And it's a dialogue between Master Mo and his fellow Confucians about exactly you know what Buddhism means, what Confucian means, Confucianism means, how they're compatible, how they are different. It's really it's really very interesting. And it reminds me a lot of the kind of conversations that are taking place today in the United States when people have discussions about the monotheistic heritage versus the Buddhist heritage. And there will be friction. There will be, you know, there there will be some people who will say they're not the same. They're different, you know, on both sides, you know, like and then there are other people like Master Mo who will say, well, actually, I don't think, you know, I think you can compare this and you can compare that. You know, like, um, but I think that process will take like uh, 300 to 500 years. You know, like, um, but I'm, I'm content with that. You know, like, I mean, uh, you know, Christianity in particular has a very strong sense of its, um, of its mission and its, uh, its worthiness in the same way that Confucians had a very strong and secure sense of their of their importance. You know, like and Confucians weren't, you know, they weren't willing to give that up just because a new religion, you know, came, came you know, in, in into the cultural mix. You know, like uh, but, you know, like you mentioned people like Thomas Merton, one of my favorite uh, Christian writers is Dionysus the Areopagites, who wrote roughly around 300 our era. And he wrote a work called Mystical Theology. Interestingly enough, Mystical Theology teaches the doctrine of no soul, you know, like, uh, in a Christian context. And there is a, there is a thread of this uh, teaching of no soul within a Christian context. A modern uh, representative, I'm trying to remember her name, um, Bernadette Roberts, I think is her name, and she actually has published a book called The Experience of No Self, you know, like, and, which, is, which is fascinating because Buddhism tends to view the, the idea of no soul and no self as unique to a Buddhist context. You know, like it's what distinguishes, one of the things which distinguishes Buddhism from Hinduism and Jainism, for example, in India. You know, like, but here you find exactly this kind of teaching within a, uh, a monotheistic context, you know, like in my opinion, a bridge can be built between monotheism and um, uh, Buddhism, a bridge of understanding, uh, 
through the understanding of the doctrine of dependence, which I brought up earlier. You know, the cloud of sound, everything arises due to causes and conditions. So in the in classic monotheistic theology, not just Christian but monotheism in general, everything in existence depends upon God, because okay? God is the origin of all that exists. You know, like there was nothing, and then out of nothing, existence emerges. So ultimately, everything uh, everything is dependent upon God. In mystical theology you trace back the chain of causation into the luminous darkness out of which all things come. Okay, So it, that's the um, apophatic path of, uh, of the monotheistic tradition. In Buddhism, everything is dependent upon causes and conditions. But what I'm, what I'm trying to express here is that in both traditions, the experience of dependence is absolutely central to awakening. As defined in the two the two traditions, you know, like you know, like uh, you you ha- the in Buddhism, you know, one of the meanings of ignorance is the belief that you exist separately or independently or on your own, you know, like the you know, like and the removal of that at all levels uh, is um, the removal of ignorance, you know, like so in the Christian tradition. You know, like the idea that that you exist independently is also considered like a source of sin. Augustine, for example, refers to that as as the basis of sin. You know, like because you exist uh, completely uh, uh, from the grace of God. So the two different traditions explain dependence differently, but the experience of dependence. Is at the heart of both traditions, mm-hmm. you know. Like, so it's my opinion that a bridge of understanding can be built on the basis of that experience. And so I would not ask monotheists to give up their explanation of dependence, and I would not ask Buddhists to give up their explanation of dependence. But I do believe a mutual understanding could be rooted in that central experience. The experience comes first. The explanation is second. Okay. So uh, Dionysus the Areopagite, um, uh, at the end of Mystical Theology, which is a very short work, um, I think of Mystical Theology as a Christian Heart Sutra. You know, like it's very you know, like, but but uh, at at the end he says all of our explanations and all of our theology are next to it, but they are not of it. Okay, so you know, next two isn't isn't a bad place to be. Next two is pretty good, actually. You know, like I mean, it's better than being like really far from. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like but but on the other hand, you know, like it is important to understand that distinction. You know, like so, uh, you know, like once again, the experience of dependence, the experience of like with every breath I breathe, the whole world is sustaining my existence. You know, with every bite of food that I eat, the whole world is sustaining and nourishing my existence. You know, like moment to moment to moment to moment, my existence here is a gift, a, if you, a grace, if you will, from countless beings. You know, like so, there's not even one moment or one breath that is mine. You know, like that I possess. 
that's my individual property. You know, like so, you know, realizing that gratitude spontaneously arises in the heart. You know, like, like, gee, you know, all this has been given to me, and I didn't even ask. You know, like it's it's really quite astonishing. You know, like uh, out of that gratitude, then the bodhisattva direction of of helping other beings manifests. You know, like because oh, all this has been done for me. Maybe I should give a little back. What do you think? You know, like so what a good idea. You know, like, so, you know, like maybe I can assist other beings. You know, like instead of just being on the receiving end constantly. You know, like. So, so those, those are a few of my thoughts. Uh, I've been very interested in, you know, over the decades that I've been studying the Dharma, of, of watching this. And, and I do believe that the, the transmission of Buddhism to China is actually a, a strong historical parallel to what is occurring in, in the West today. And um, I know when I, in, the <laughs> in the 70s, a lot of us had the idea that we would sort of, uh, you know, do it... Satori, Kensho, you know, like six months tops. You know, if we were really dulled, six months. You know, like, so, <laughs> you know, like and uh, and uh, but that was okay. You know, like uh, to, to have that to have that feeling. But I'm very content now with the idea of a gradual rooting of the Dharma in the West. You know, something that will take um, many centuries. You know, like in fact, I think slow is good. You know, it allows for the roots to sink deeper. You know, Buddhism is still kind of exotic in the West. You know, the altars are exotic, the clothes are exotic. It still looks sort of like you're going to something that's been imported. It still has an imported feel to it. And that was true in China for a long time also. It took a very long time for the Chinese to develop a vocabulary that didn't sound foreign. You know, I mean, if you if you look at the translations of the sutras into Chinese, they tried four, five, six times with most sutras. You know, like before they got something that that clicked. You know, and they said, "Oh yeah, that oh I can hear that. I can hear that now. I can you know like this." And and I think the same will will be here. You know, like uh, it's uh, you know what is the English vocabulary for a lot of these Buddhist concepts. You know, like what, what, how will that, how will that work out? How will the English language absorb these kinds of understandings and these things? So, even at that level. So, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Actually, let's make this the last one if we can. Jimmy, are you available afterwards for? Um, yeah, sure. Okay. okay. Last question. Thank you. So, a, a, perhaps a strange question of connected in my mind <coughs> around dependent origination and causes and conditions. And that's the concept which I, I don't understand, and so I wonder if you might have something to add to it, of time as just another dimension. Uh, because it seems to me the, these all these thoughts that we have about do this, don't do that, and, and so forth, are connected with this con- this concept of a, of a progression, and time is being different, and once it's gone, it's forever gone, and we can change how it's going to be some, in something that's never there versus it's all here. And so I wondered if you have any thoughts or comments about that. Uh, I would recommend uh, Eternity and Time's Flow by Richard Neville, you know, like, uh, but but um, addresses that topic. Uh, but uh, briefly, I, w- I would, uh, um, time is not 
another dimension of existence. Time is existence unfolding. So um, by that I mean that um, if there were no objects in the world, if there were no things in the world, there would be no time. Time is dependent upon things. You know, like, and things are dependent upon time. They are mutual, mutually, uh, mutually interdependent relationship. You know, like, so Dogen is uh, uh, is the best Buddhist writer I've come across on this uh, on this topic. You know, particularly his essay E.G. <coughs> being time. You know, like, being is time. Time is being. You know, like. Yeah, like I say, time is a pine tree. Time is my right elbow. You know, like so. What what he means by that? Uh, time is a sixteen foot tall Buddha. You know, like what he means uh, by this is that uh, time is not um, a vessel in which the universe dances. You know, the dance of things in the universe is time. You know, like and. Uh, if you if you understand that, then you can use time for the benefit of all sentient beings, because you're not trapped in the vessel of time. You are time. So how do you do that? Okay. So uh, the way you do that is through intention. Okay. So in uh, every you know New Year's is coming around. This is now New Year's Eve Eve. Okay. So. And people make resolutions right, on New Year's Eve. Well, what is that? That's a, 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 an understanding, an intuitive understanding that time is a wave of energy, that it is possible to use that energy in a transformative way. You know, like it's possible to plug into that energy and to, uh, and to, uh, the reason it's possible to plug into that energy is because you are that energy. You know, like so, uh, when you um, you know renewing one's commitment on a regular basis, you know on a cyclic basis, is transforming the cycle of suffering into the cycle of liberation. Okay? So that time itself becomes a means for benefiting sentient beings. You know, like so. Uh, this can, uh, in Buddhism, this can get a little complicated. But uh, origin in the uh, monastic Buddhism, there's a ceremony called Upasata, which takes place on the the full moon, in which monastics regularly renew their precepts, all 250 of them. So, <laughs> so yeah, like and. Uh, uh, well, what's the meaning of that? That's plugging into the lunar cycle and using the energy of lunar cycle to transform one's practice yeah, in exactly the same way that a New Year's resolution you know, like, is used. You know, like, so you can use those energies, those cyclical energies, uh, uh, as a basis for one's practice and, and personal transformation and the uh, transformation of all living beings. So, for example, take uh, take the five precepts. Renewing one's commitment to the five precepts and the, and that path of transformation on a regular basis. Why not the lunar? You know, why not the lunar cycle? Once a month on the full moon, you know, something like that. Um, so, 
that's uh, that's my quick comment on time. The time is not an independent entity. It's not it's not an additional dimension of of existence. It is it's you and me. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Well, it's a very difficult. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate. expressed by many of us uh, to deepen our practice in 2008 and um, there's a uh, a great opportunity coming up over Martin Luther King weekend uh, 17th, 18th and 19th of January for a uh, LGBT uh, three night meditation retreat up at Saratoga Springs which is about two and a half hours north of here a beautiful retreat center and the retreat's being taught by Larry Yang, who was here last week, and uh, Anushka Fernandapool, both of whom are uh, students of Jack Cornfield, teachers in training of his, and longtime practitioners as well. And uh, it's going to be a mixed retreat, LGBT. It's put on by the Monday night <coughs> group at the, at the Gay Center that meets 530 to 6.30. So there's some flyers out there, and Saratoga Springs uh, website, also has information on it, and it will be a, a great uh, a great opportunity for those of us who have never been on a residential retreat. It's not as long as the five night one, and it might be a good introduction. So hope uh, hope you can join us. Who's the host? Um, I'm the host. I'm Larry, and uh, I hope everybody can enjoy the. Foods that I've brought, uh, shameless plug, they come from the kitchen that I helped to run, which has nutrient-dense uh, traditional foods, and everyone can just enjoy it. If anybody else has uh, interest in knowing what it is or why we make it, I'm happy to answer that kind of question. Oh, and wash your cups at the end. Right? <laughs> oh, and... Uh, the Don Bowl will be going around. It's a totally voluntary contribution of uh, money toward the Sangha. The suggested donation is somewhere between 5 and $8, uh, and uh, anything or nothing is uh, acceptable. Any further announcements? Next week's speakers are actually a Dharma duo, so we're going to be hearing the Dharma from within the Sangha, life stories of two members who are Carlazania, you're in the blue switchshirt. No, not me. Oh, no? Carlazania. He's not here today. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) He's not here today. If you work here today, you'd wear your blue one. You're Carol. And he's not here. And Dad Paul, who is here. So let's stand in circle for our dedication. today, may all beings take the opportunity of existence and become free.
Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.